Recorded live. This show is brought to you by TalkShoe, where anyone can create their own internet talk show. Check it out at talkshoe.com. Good day, and welcome wherever you're listening from to IAQ Radio. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, Cliff Zlotnick, and our technical assistant, the cyber jockey, Zach Zlotnick. Good to be here. Thanks, guys, for being with us. And today's show is sponsored by Indoor Environment Connections, uh, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. You can reach them at ieconnections.com. And our second sponsor today is John Don Products, where remediation and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Today's guests are going to be Bob and Gail Brandis. We'll give you a little more detail on their backgrounds in a moment. And Felicia Sciancerulo. I'll get that right yet, uh, Cliff. But, uh, Pretty Cliff good. will help me with it later on today. All right. If you'd like to call in to the show, we're live every Friday at noon Eastern. And uh, it's obviously going to be a little more fun and interesting if we get some text questions or call in. If you want to call in live, you have to go to, to the uh, TalkShoe website, www.talkshoe.com. Get yourself a PIN number and then dial 724-444-7444. This show's ID number is 1547. Or once you get yourself logged in at TalkShoe, if you would like to text a question live, you download the TalkShoe software and start typing. It will come up on our screen, and we'll pass your question along to our guests. All right, the next thing we have to do for today is go back to the microband systems trivia question of the day. And I'm going to turn it over to the president of microband systems, Cliff Zlotnick, for the trivia question. We still got a couple. Uh, yeah, we do, Joe. We still have a couple of previous trivia questions in play. Uh, uh, the first of these is, uh, what is the origin uh, of the term stachybotrys? Uh, it's, it comes from Latin, so we'll give you a hint there, and perhaps someone will be able to pick up on that and determine it. Uh, the second is a practical question. Uh, a mold inspector uh, has found extensive fuzzy white stuff on a cinder block wall. When viewed under a microscope, crystalline structure was visible. An accredited IAHA lab determined the material not to be biological, but rather chemical. We're looking for the actual chemical nature of this material. We want to know what it's called chemically. We'd like to put a couple of additional uh, trivia questions in play. The first of these is a mycology question. And this is a fungus. We're looking for the name of it. Uh, this fungus was used as a source of body paint by Native American Indians in the Northwest. So we're looking for the name of that fungus. We also have an insect question that we would like to put into play. Uh, this is the only insect that is capable of giving birth to live young rather than laying eggs. So we'd like to know the name of that insect. So 
that's Excellent. about five questions in play. We've had uh, some interesting responses to the first one still, the Stacky Botrys, uh question, Cliff. We've had several people try, but no cigar, and we've had a few responses on the chemical composition, too, um, of the efflorescence that oftentimes is found in basements and other locations. So without uh, going into any more on that issue, let's bring in our first guests, and they come as a team, uh, Bob Brandis and Gail Brandis. Bob is the president of Occupational and Environmental Health Consulting Services, Inc. They are located in Hinsdale, Illinois. Dr. Bob has a Ph.D. in Environmental Safety and Health, a Master's in Public Health, and dual undergraduate degrees in Thermomechanical Engineering and Environmental Engineering. He's also a registered professional engineer, a certified industrial hygienist, a certified safety professional, and a certified mold remediator. He's got more letters behind his name than anybody I know. At this Definitely point. holds the record uh, for sure. With him, it will be his wife, Gail, who is the Director of Training Services for Occupational Environmental Health Consulting Services. Gail has a master's degree in industrial safety management and a BS degree in secondary science education from the University of Delaware. She is also a certified safety professional, a certified indoor environmentalist, and certified mold remediator. And she has also been heavily involved in providing training for asbestos, lead-based paint, and other types of uh, hazardous waste operations. She has been a health and safety consultant for over 25 years, and they have co-authored three books. Those books would include Post-Remediation, Verification, and Clearance Testing of Mold and Bacteria, Worldwide Exposure Standards for Mold and Bacteria, and Global Occupational Exposure Standards for Over 5,000 Chemicals. Welcome, Bob and Gail. Thank you for being here. Hello. Thank you, Joe. It's good to hear from you. All Hi, right. Great, great. We, we have connected. This is excellent. Uh, I would like to start out today by just asking a few general questions. I'm, I'm curious, um, what, what got you involved with the indoor environmental quality uh, issues? Was that a spinoff from some of the other work that you've done previously, or have you always been involved in these issues? Well, in my case, I've been an environmentalist and in doing indoor air quality assessments, at least in industry, going all the way back to 1968. And Gail? I started doing safety and hygiene back around 1980. Wow. Yeah. We've got two of the two of the founders of the modern-day indoor environmental quality industry here. We have, uh, I see quite a bit of your uh, writings and uh, postings on different chat rooms, and I am familiar with your books as well. Uh, my my partner, Cliff, had put together a couple of questions. I'd like to ask one of them, um, which group currently, and he has a list of them here. We've got IAQA, the Indoor Air Quality Association, the ASCR, the Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration, the IICRC, uh, AIHA, which is the 
American Industrial Hygiene Association, ASHRAE. Which of those do you think is having the biggest impact on the microbial remediation field? Positive impact or negative impact? <laughs> let's go either way. Yeah, let's you go. Well, actually, let's go both ways. Let's go yeah. both ways, please. Okay, which one first? Uh, let's do positive first. Okay. What do you think, Bob? Well, I I think IAQA has had the the most positive impact on. My okay. And why? Well, um, IAQA, in my experience, going back a number of years now, is, has been willing to deal with controversial information, uh, opposing opinions, and openness to, to different ideas. And as a result, they've evolved uh, far better ways of looking at things and more detailed ways of, of dealing with mold and, and bacteria con, uh, contamination problems. Um, and that's one of the reasons we support IAQA very strongly, because willing to listen to a lot of information not just uh, either special interest or limited information. Very good. What, uh, let's take the other side. Let's take the negative side. I think Bob and I would probably both agree that, uh, with a heavy heart, though, that uh, AIHA is probably dragging their feet uh, in this area of indoor air quality. I, I'm not sure if it's just that they had a level of comfort with the industrial um, end of, of hygiene, that they had fairly clearly defined contaminants they were dealing with. They read them off of an MSDS. They had OSHA PELs established for a, a number of those chemicals. They had they were working in kind of a comfortable pocket. But when we get into IAQ with hundreds if not thousands of chemicals at extremely low levels, most of which do not have PELs or they wouldn't be appropriate, I think they're, they feel a little bit out of their league. And same thing with microbial. I, I don't feel that they are adequately preparing the hygienists that are out there for what awaits them in the real world. Do you have anything to add to that, Bob? Um, well, yeah, it, it goes back to the issue of openness uh, of information. And historically, both AIHA and ACGIH have taken the opinion that only research done in, in this country is the only valid research there is. And in, in the last few years, they've, they've been a little bit more open to at least information coming out of Germany. But so much of what they've, they've based their opinions on is myopic, limited to this country. And from a, an R&D point of view, the United States per capita spends virtually the least amount of dollars on indoor air quality research compared to what goes on in, in all of the EU countries. You know, just to contrast on that, you know that America takes 70% of the prescription drugs that are made? Mm-hmm. Yes. 70%. <laughs> yes. So we, we treat it medically rather than fixing the building, I guess. Right, right. I think that's something that Bob has you know, has spoken out about quite, a, you know, quite frequently, and uh, hopefully we will see that change. I'm curious, though, the AIHA put out their second edition of the um, Biological Contaminants in Indoor Environments, and I'll be honest, I have not had time to read the whole thing, and Bob, my guess is you have. Yeah, I have recently reviewed it, yeah. I'll 
comments, uh, opinions on whether that's a, an improvement over the first volume and also whether it's uh, a good reference document for those out there doing indoor environmental quality work? Um, well, I would say it, it's a book that should be read. Um, but as with all books, don't believe everything you read. Even the ones that you guys have written? Well, um, nothing's ever perfect. Okay. But, um, you know, part of it is the ability of the reader to critically analyze what they're being told. And is it an opinion or is it something based upon a study? Uh, Virtually everything we do in our reference books is substantiated by scientific study versus some of these books that are out there that give a lot of opinions, but where's the data to back them up? Um, and, and that's part of the problem I have with a lot of things that that I've read from ACGIH and and, and, and it's part of what I'm looking forward to next year um, in from IAQA and the IAQ industry is to, to provide some science and answer issues and questions Rather than you know based on things on opinion, um, the second edition book, uh, the major change in it is it contains far more information relative to DEFON or aerosol sampling. Um, it's a technology that uh, is relatively new in the area of bioaerosol sampling. Uh, it was a, a weak point in, in the first edition because the first edition was written. Or that technology became widespread. So they, they kind of added that uh, a number of pages on that whole sampling technology. One problem that I see with a lot of these books would be that they give you a wonderfully detailed methodology on how to take the samples, and then once you get your results back, their, their whole support system just falls apart. Let's compare indoor to outdoor, as if that's really the panacea. And uh, so I, I see that they really need to come down and decide what do we do with this information once we get it and what are the different ways you can uh, analyze and determine if it's a suitable or, a, or not a suitable um, environment for people to be occupying. What is normal fungal ecology? And that's, I think, the, the $64,000 question in all of this. What's okay and what's not okay? Why is, the, why is it just fungal ecology? What about other types of microorganisms? And you know, they, they seem to be rarely considered. Well, I think a lot of that is the fact that um, if we look at bacteria in our environment, there's a lot there already. <laughs> yeah, but you know, one of the things you said is if you look at it, and I think that's one of the issues, you can't right. see it the same as we can with fungal. And I don't know that it's really been investigated to as much an extent as fungal is. When Bob is, is trying to see if there's enough information worldwide to to establish some what's okay, what's not okay on bacteria. Uh, and he's having a, a bit of a, a time searching and, and coming up with enough information uh, to be able to make any generalizations about that. Maybe, Bob, you want to go into that a little bit? You're absolutely right. The, you know, mold is not the only thing uh, or the only flora within our environment. And if one goes back into the the literature, you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, there was an awful lot of work done relative to bacterial contamination and 
disease. And, and clearly the older research showed a direct relationship between indoor uh, bacteriological uh, levels and the spread of disease. What happened was antibiotics hit the scene and nobody paid attention any, anymore. Virtually all of the sampling and research stopped. So a lot of the information relative to bacterial uh, levels and contamination predates 1960, going all the way back almost 100 years. Um, and we've been doing some research in that area and trying to get some, some ideas on what are bacterial levels. And China actually has a whole set of standards for 18 different environments on bacterial levels. Um, Poland has some standards on it. Hungary, uh, not Hungary, but Czech recently passed standards on indoor bacterial levels. So, you know, there is research going on out there in the EU and, and in the Far East relative to that. As a, you know, one of the things I've always questioned is we know that most of these indoor air quality problems related to fungal contamination start out as a water damage gone bad. Okay. And what happens is I think we also know that these fungal organisms are not the first organisms that grow. You know, oftentimes, you know, bacteria are going to amplify because they do much better in these higher uh, moisture available environments. What happens is people can totally overlook that yes. and then jump right to, well, there's fungi, I'm sick, therefore the fungi makes me sick. And, uh, you, know, you know, where's the science with this? Yeah. We have the same criticism, too, of the document um, that ASSE is, is putting out relative to worker protection. And they want to have a document that specifies respiratory protection for workers involved in remediation, but they, they totally ignore bacteria. And this is the, for those that aren't familiar with it, the ASSE Z690 Guidelines for Mold and Fungi Control and Remediation for Worker Protection in Indoor Work Environments. I think I got right. that all in. What, uh, what point in the ANSI, I know this is the... Uh, the American Society of Safety Engineers, they are working on an ANSI approval for this document. What point is that approval process at at this point in time? Can you tell us? Well, the, the ANSI 690 committee goes back uh, five years now, um, and they have now finally issued their first draft for peer review given the number of comments that they have gotten back on that, uh, I suspect we won't see a second version of that document peer review for probably about a year. What are your opinions on the respiratory protection? Do you think that the document um, should specify greater amounts of respiratory protection, or do you think that the respiratory protection specified is over-specified and they could get along with much less? It's not specified. That's the that's the okay. the problem. Is it says choose uh, respiratory protection based upon concentration. Well, <laughs> what's your limits? What's your standard? What protection factor do you need based upon what standard? So it has real nice language that talks good terms, but without a yardstick, it's meaningless. Well, because people are out there now doing mold remediation, and the standard's going to be some time before it gets you know, published, goes through peer review, right. and becomes accepted. What would you recommend people wear in the interim? Oh, there has to be some form of respiratory protection to control not just mold exposure, but construction dust exposure. And, 
and that that's been kind of our big thrust here is targeting mold relative to remediation and cleanup of water damaged materials is is just too limited there's there's a lot of dust that gets generated there's bacteria that gets aerosolized there's a lot of chemicals and, and other particulates that get aerosolized and mold is only a tiny portion of the picture right i'd like to see a minimum of an n100 okay. i don't like the n95 right why not i just don't think it's protective enough 95 versus 100 a lot of your stuff is smaller uh, and respirable so i think the n100 would be my minimum and I don't think there's that big of a cost differential between the two. No, there's probably not. I mean, my my wife is fascinated by these television shows, uh, either fictional or uh, or accurate, that deal with medical issues. And you mm-hmm. see these people in hospital operating rooms and hospital emergency rooms, and you know they don't know whether the person's coming in has HIV or has tuberculosis or whatever. And you know the amazing thing is that we oftentimes see prescriptions for much higher levels of respiratory protection and, and body protection uh, for doing mold remediation than we see used in a hospital operating room or used by emergency responders. Uh, could you comment on that? You're absolutely correct. <laughs> but generally, if you're doing demolition activities and you can get spore levels in the hundreds of thousands per cubic meter, I don't think you're going to see levels like that in a hospital. No, probably not. And I guess that brings something uh, that I think I, w- I was just waiting to talk to you about anyways. You know, when you're talking about uh, excessive levels uh, of uh, fungal contamination in the air, what's your opinion on using water or using misting or amended water in order to deal with it? Well, I, I think that's one of the issues that we need to do some more research on. There, there There's differing opinions. Uh, there are people who who take the mycologist viewpoint that a lot of mold and and mold growth uh, repels water, so putting water on it isn't going to do any good. And then there's the, the other set that says water in the air uh, helps to control concentrations of dust. Um, my personal opinion is I support the use of water as a control mechanism. I would also recommend that they add some type of surfactant to it to, to help it wet things down. Um, the research, uh, historic bioaerosol research, clearly shows that fogs and mists reduce the concentrations of mold in the atmosphere. And if it's a saturated condition, it also decreases the viability of bacteria. Um, so for those two reasons, I support the use of, of water as a control mechanism. But, you know, you don't overkill and, and cause another water intrusion problem. I think that's one of the. I think that's one of the issues. I think uh, you know, with your experience in uh, asbestos abatement and removal of hazardous materials, this use of water misting uh, or amended water with detergent or surfactant has been proven uh, to be effective. And what I don't understand is why they think that the small amount of water uh, that's used in terms of doing this is going to you know create mold growth. You know, the funny thing is we have a training center in which we do some mold remediation training, and it's pretty challenging for us. You know, we wet building materials. We try to grow mold on purpose, and the amazing thing is it's pretty hard. And, you know, you see these rules of 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours. You know, I can't grow it in weeks under ideal conditions. You know, you've got to have something to inoculate it, and and I think that's one of the, the difficulties one has in doing those type of experiments. 
is you take a brand new piece of drywall and you try and grow something on it, and it takes a long, long time. We have inoculated it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've had uh, laboratory preparus, uh, you know, penicillin species, and so on and so forth. We've inoculated it. We've inoculated it with, you know, we've gone around to, to living to what we believe is or presume are living mold colonies right, and right. gathered samples and inoculated it with that. Uh, we've added uh, Gatorade to it because the <laughs> University of Florida did a study that uh, shows that Gatorade is, is good, and it's just not that easy. Well, I, I think it, it's a, a more complex issue in that we find that newer construction, first time there's a water intrusion, you rarely find mold contamination. Take an older home you know, with drywall that's 25, 30, 40 years old, where the drywall has undergone repeated uh, annual differences in relative or, or absolute humidity. And, and given the background that penicillium, you know, if you just look at your refrigerator, can grow under very limited water conditions, though it, grow, it may grow very slowly. But I strongly suspect that older building materials have a, a background level of very slowly growing penicillium or, or, or a villa species. Those can tolerate very dry conditions. And I think once you have a water intrusion in these older portions of buildings, that stuff tends to bloom a lot easier. And that's, that's why it's more difficult it on uh, newer materials. And you can see that if you do bulk samples of drywall. You do a bulk sample of newer stuff versus bulk samples of older stuff. And in older stuff, you find background levels. They're not zero. Well, actually, even on new stuff, you find uh, it's not a sterile material. So there are probably both um, fungal and bacterial spores incorporated yeah. as part of the manufacturing process. But you can find orders of magnitude higher. I think that's what Bob Okay, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, we are getting a little short on time, and I have one question I'd like to ask, and then we have a couple that we always finish with. Should we be, as in this document we just mentioned, guidelines for mold and fungi control, should we be separating the people that are doing mold remediation from the people doing water damage restoration. Aren't they, in essence, doing the same thing? Well, I think that water damage, if, again, if you can catch things early enough <clears throat> and there isn't mold growth, then I think your water restoration dam and damage folks can get in there and do what they need to do. And as more building owners have, that have been burned by their lack of response to a water intrusion on one occasion, they kind of, you know, get the gospel and they say, oh, we need a water intrusion control program. We may see that mold remediation may start to dwindle as building owners get a little more savvy and deal with it when they should. So I, I don't know. I, I, I still see that there could be a separation between the two. It just depends on how people manage their buildings. Yeah, and, you know, we work with remediation contractors and fires and intrusions. And they clearly know now that if you can get in there in 24 to 48 hours and, and eliminate all of the water-saturated materials, you know, if, it, if it's not unreasonable to remove that stuff, you don't have a mold problem. Um, it is the practice of, uh, it's not a practice, but the 
I'll wait till I get around to it attitude that that has generated a lot of the mold contamination issues or or you know apartment holders or homeowners that uh, ignore leaking toilets, ignore leaking roofs, and by the time things get really out of control it's it's something that's been going on for years uh, I think you know, we see certainly in the commercial building area that the response has drastically changed in the last five years. They get water intrusion and they respond to it in 24 hours or less. And that never used to be the practice. This is a good thing that we are seeing in the industry. Yes. You're yeah, not just uh, only a remediator. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also wanted to quickly mention that I know Bob in particular, Bob and Gail both are interested in the uh, particle monitoring data that people may be collecting on these projects. Um, we don't have a great deal of time to go into that, but we're going to, at the end of this segment, give you a way to contact Bob. And if you have any particle monitoring data from your projects that you are doing, uh, whether they be water damage or mold remediation or even demolition projects, I know that um, Bob would be very interested in having that information. Uh, how is it coming al uh, along with gathering that type of stuff, Bob? Um, we're in the early stages of that, that project, and the more data we get from around the country and around the world, uh, you know, I think the better off we're going to be. Um, it's an area where the technology is now cost feasible um, and you know, the latest uh, stuff coming out about the potential health effects of PM 2.5 particles, that's scary stuff. I mean, that, it, it causes significant premature death in a large number of people annually. And we, when you walk into a, a home or a commercial building and you see elevated PM 2.5 levels, you know, that's not a zero risk issue. And, and I think, at least for me, I think that's going to be a new... Uh, area for IAQ people to, to target on their evaluations. So we need this particle data. We need some reference. We need some backgrounds. And, and we need to be able to say, hey, this is out of line for this building or this home. It can also be helpful in, in allocating what worker protection would be appropriate. Uh, it could be helpful in looking at remediation work practices. It could have very vast ramifications and usefulness of the data. I've got a question for you. Uh, this new terminology uh, has been introduced into the industry, IEP, Indoor Environmental Professional. And what my opinion is, is you know, based on your many years of experience, did you learn this business? Did you learn the industry? Did you learn about buildings by doing it and, and learning from your mistakes and this process of personal evolution? Or do you think this is something that's going to be able to be taught in a two, or three, or four, or five-day class? <laughs> Um, well, my experience comes from working in construction, working in architecture, working in building designs, uh, working in a lot of details of, of clean room designs in the pharmaceutical device industry. Uh, so I have, a, you know, a fairly extensive building science background. Now, do I think at least a good amount of information can be taught in a, a five-day CIEC course? Sure. Um, and there's no there's no way you can or you shouldn't be out there, you know, dabbling and learning from your mistakes because your mistakes may not be good for the building occupants. 
really need training to, to truly understand all of the complexities involved in doing IAQ work. Well, I guess what, what my question was is, you know, I, I think that that program, the CIEC program, is an excellent program. It's evolved over time, and the Indoor Air Quality Association and the council and so on and so forth uh, have been doing this for, for quite some time. But, you know, rumor has it that other organizations are going to get into the certification business and possibly be certifying under that designation IEP. Well, um, you know, we... We've been in the uh, certification uh, merry-go-round for a, a number of years, and, and you can you can tell by the number of letters after. <laughs> right, I understand. Right. Um, you know, it's it's really going to depend upon the the person if they want a credential that they have a lot of confidence in in developing their expertise then they choose that credential. If they're just looking to get some letters after their name and, and really don't care how well they know the, the information, they'll go elsewhere. Uh, it's one of personal credibility. But I think, I think the question is if they're going to be using the, the term IEP and trying to, to put out courses that, that probably don't have the same caliber that, that uh, IAQA does, but I think that's going to happen no matter what. I think that's human nature. Um, Can't have a horse race without two horses, I guess. Mm. <laughs> and IEP is a, a generic term. Anyhow, it supposedly describes the types of people, and that could be a CIH with the proper background and understanding of building sciences. It could be a CSP who has that type of experience. I guess... What I'd like to leave, we, we usually have two questions at the end of each segment, and one is, how do consumers out there figure out this alphabet soup, and, um, or would you have them ignore it and just look at the person's experience and background? Or, uh, you know, what, what kind of advice would you give consumers who are looking for someone to help them with what they may think is an indoor environmental quality problem? Well, I think they first need to do their homework a little bit you know, and try and find out as much information as they can. Um, Internet may be one source, but some of that stuff can be disinformation as, as much as information. But learn as much as they can, and I think they'd be less likely to be snowed or duped by someone who starts talking about toxic, you know, mold of death or any, something like that. Um, and, to, and to ask a lot of questions of the people that, that they are looking to do work for them. We've spent an hour on the phone with some people that just have a whole bunch of questions, and we will sit there and we'll answer their questions because we know that they're trying to reach a level of comfort with whoever they bring in to work on their problem. So that would be my advice. Do your homework and ask a lot of questions. Well, we've got a, uh, an email question. Doesn't cost influence the decision of these consumers as well, and how do we, you know, how do we get people to understand that maybe the cheapest isn't always the best? <laughs> well, there's been some discussion relative to the issue of dollars and and consultants and what's what's the error rate? Because that's really what it comes down to. You know, you may have a thousand consumers. Uh, they may choose uh, Joe Schmoo Consulting Firm or Joe Schmoo Home Inspector to do their their mold evaluation. Probably for 90% of those people, it really didn't make any difference because it wasn't a significant issue. But you're looking at that 5 or 10% where 
Joe Schmoo missed the problem or misdiagnosed the problem. So 10% of the people really need to, to do better homework. If, you know, my advice is if you are having health problems rather than, oh, I see some mold, then you need to be more circumspect on who you're retaining to look at your problem. Yeah, they have that famous adage, you know, the cost of education mm -hmm. uh, is uh, low when compared to the cost of ignorance. But still, you can have some consultants that can come in there and charge you a very pretty penny and do virtually nothing for you. So that cost alone is not the indication of the quality of work you're going to get. I've got, speaking of cost, I've got a personal question for you, Gil. Who has the higher billing rate, you or your husband? Oh, Bob does. <laughs> okay. More initials. Okay, yeah, I just wanted to just keep it, clear. it Now, I'm not saying he's worth more than I am. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just would add or maybe get your opinion. Would you recommend that consumers go to, for instance, the epa.gov website and look at their indoor air quality information? Is that a good way to start? with respect to educating yourself before hiring someone? I think they do have a fairly good um, base of information there that's easy to read and understand, at the, I would say, at the consumer level. I think that would be a good place to start. Are there any others that you could recommend? Well, about New York City, I don't know if they, they also have some information. I know it's a little harder to dig up, but they do have some information on mold guidelines. What, what do you think, Bob? Um, there are a couple sites put out by doctor groups. Um, I think uh, WebMD has got something, and, and there was a couple other ones that are actually fairly good um, in terms of providing detailed information and perspective, and, and those sites are, are better than the EPA or governmental agencies, because the governmental agencies tend to deal with, with general information and, and not specifics and nothing controversial. And, I find these medical sites uh, that are doctor-sponsored to contain far more perspective and useful information. To if you simply read the EPA site, you're not going to get all the information you need. Okay. Now there's an AHA brochure out too on mold, isn't there? I don't know if that was well, available. Have, have, their site has limited information again. Right. How about CDC? Uh, you know, it's a one-page information. Yeah. It's limited. Yeah. It's, I, I don't find the governmental stuff real useful. What about the governmental stuff on uh, recovery after floods and uh, hurricanes, things of that nature? Do you um, find the FEMA information useful? Yeah, I, I mean, I've looked at the FEMA information. I looked at what they sent to people in New Orleans and, and down in... It's, it's stuff that goes back many years. It's, it's good, gross recovery advice. Uh, but there's little information about about uh, what if you have underlying microbial contamination and how you deal with it. I mean, they tell you to get rid of the wet materials, dry the place out, but what if you're not able to dry it out? What if there's no electricity? What do you do at that point? And that's where all of those those guidelines or recommendations fall apart because they don't talk about what is a long-term impact on a building that isn't dried rapidly. Well, we are running over, and I, I apologize for that to our next guest who I know is on the line, but I, the last question we always ask is, is there anything that you would like to add that we didn't get a chance to cover? We'd certainly love to have you come back. I still have probably six or eight questions I'd like to ask you, but do you have anything you would like to add that we missed, Bob or Gail, either one or both? 
Well, one thing I'd like to add is that if people do read articles, either in the newspaper or on television, and those of us who are professionals, and we see that something is misrepresented or wrong, that we take the time to either write to the station or let them know that we do not want revisionist history, we do not want them to whitewash reality, uh, and to tell things like they truly are. Excellent. Thank you. That's good, Bob. I I have to second Gail's statement. Uh, We are seeing more what we call revisionist history coming out where the facts in terms of a chemical contamination or indoor air quality, they're being changed. People try and go back and find out what really happened, and, and they can't. So if you if you were involved in any of these previous instances, you see media giving disinformation on the black mold of death, which is still you You've got to get out there and tell them, hey, you know, this isn't the truth. Let's put some perspectives on this. Well, before you go, could you tell our listeners how to contact you and where they can get copies of your books if they're interested? Um, they can find us on the web at www.oehcs.com, or they can email us at bobb at safety epa.com. Very good. I, I didn't quite. Uh, we broke up for just a moment. Could you give the email one more time, Bob? Okay. It's it's b o b b at safety dash epa dot com. Safety dash epa dot com. Well, thank you both for joining us. It's been. Uh, Great pleasure having you on. I hope we can get you back. And please, if you'd like to stick around, I know you're interested in the next subject we have coming up and our next guest. So if you uh, would like to stick around, we'd love to have you. Yeah, I definitely want to listen to what Felicia has to say. Thanks, Joe. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Cliff, do you want to uh, do the honors for Uh, Felicia? Oh, I'd be glad to. Uh, Zach, we have her on the line? Okay, wonderful. Okay, our next guest is Felicia Changerulo. Uh, Dr. Changerulo received her Ph.D. in molecular biology, genetics, and microbiology. I'm sorry, microbiology from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, in addition to that, she's done work for the Department of Defense and the EPA. Dr. Changerulo is a member of the faculties of Carlo College. In addition, she teaches microbiology to nursing students at Mercy Hospital and at Allegheny Community College. Uh, she also has a private consulting business, which trades as FLC, Technical and Scientific Consulting. Felicia, good morning. Thanks for coming on to our show. Hi, Cliff. How are you? Good. Hi, good. Felicia. Hi, Joe. Nice well, to hear from you again. i got a question for you. You know, it said the Department of Defense, and if you can tell me without having to kill me what you did for the Department <laughs> of Defense, I'd like to know. Um, the, the, the two uh, projects that... Um, Uh, I worked on with the Department of Defense and the Environmental Protection Agency were, um, they were specifically directed at bioremediation. And with the EPA, it was looking at the oil from the Exxon Valdez spill, because we still have some of that oil available, and looking at the ability of um, testing products that individuals were uh, manufacturing 
um, and designing efficacy tests to determine the, um, the usefulness of their product. And then with the Department of Defense, um, that involved actually um, sampling um, military sites that were no longer used and designing organisms to um, bioremediate contaminants Very at those sites. Cool. Very cool. Well, with this work that you've done, is there one microorganism that you're especially intrigued with, and if so, why? Um, I'd, although I don't work with it, uh, Pseudomonas is a, is a very unique organism, and um, the reason that it intrigues me is because we found it in everything from jet fuel to respiratory equipment in a hospital that has just been cleaned, and it's a very, what we call ubiquitous, which means it's, it's present everywhere, and it constantly changes to uh, adapt to any new environment. You know, my wife uh, is into bottled water, and I know you have some experience with water, and I was wondering what your opinion was of bottled water versus tap water, actually. Well, there's two sides to the story with the bottled and the tap, and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you both sides of it. The first one, and I tell my students this because many of them drink bottled water, and um, the one side is that the, the spring water is better for you. And when, the, when bottled water first came out, now they have improved bottled water um, and it's sanitary uh, testing, but when it first came out, a lot of the bottled water was not tested. And the argument was, well, yeah, it comes from the mountain spring, but how do you know what happened to the mountain spring before it got into your bottle? And... The students never think about that because it runs through uh, material that can have organisms in it. And so it, it's not necessarily, it doesn't say sterile or uh, treated spring water. It was just spring water. Um, water coming from the tap, uh, like I tell my students, it, it, you'd be better off buying an expensive bottle um, of water emptying it out, and then refilling it with tap water and walking around with the label. Because especially in Pittsburgh, we have some of the best water, probably because we have so much of it. Um, it's tested, and, um, you know, water coming from the tap doesn't mean that it's sterile. What it means is that the levels of living organisms are low enough so that we won't get sick. And not, not a lot of people realize this, but um, and I wouldn't have known it myself, but had when someone from South America comes to the United States and drinks our tap water, they get just as sick as we do going down to their country. And it's not that we have better organisms or we do have better sanitation, but... It's what our bodies become used to, and so when you when you go to some another place and you encounter other organisms, um, you can get just as sick as somebody coming to your uh, your country. Well, my my son's in the the studio, and in case the um, lines go dead or the radio goes down, this is probably uh, payback. But what I'd like you to do is venture an opinion on this. 
Uh, I'm, I'm looking for the potential health risks, risks of this scenario. A young kid clogs and overflows the commode after having a bowel movement. Mm-hmm. I'm sure my kids aren't the only one that have done this. As a matter of fact, both, both of my sons have done it on multiple occasions. And I'm wondering about what the potential health risks are. This is something that commonly occurs, and I think maybe people, do they overestimate it or do they underestimate the health risks? Well, I think what you have to be careful of is you can never be too, um, I don't want to say you have to panic, but if you remember that 50% of fecal material contains live organisms and you've just had an overflow in the toilet, what's the first thing that a person does when the toilet begins to overflow? They throw down towels, they grab the mop, and when it's all cleaned up and then they wash with um, maybe Lysol and then bleach and everything smells nice and it looks nice. But That's if it's on towel. What if it's on carpet? Exactly. Right. Well, if it's on carpet, then you know, hopefully they didn't use Clorox. But <laughs> <laughs> um, but at least it, it you know it smells nice. And but there's still tons and tons of microorganisms that are there. And being a pathogen simply means that it's an organism that is is not in the correct environment, and that it's also at levels that can cause illness for a human being. And for example, what I mean by that is E. coli is a necessary microorganism in our bodies. If we don't have it, we wouldn't be alive. Why? Well, it produces vitamin K, which we don't produce. but it's anticoagulant. Right, and we need that. That's the first thing. And the second thing that it does is... um, it it helps us to absorb our food. It breaks down certain uh, food products that we have more difficulty with. And um, the last thing it's involved, it, it's involved in um, B vitamin absorption. So without E. coli, and, and we see this when people take uh, heavy doses of antibiotics, they get stomach problems. And that's because it's also killing off the uh, E. coli, which are good bacteria. In our intestines, they're doing a wonderful job. But when they come out of the intestines and they go back into the digestive tract through the oral route, um, they they become pathogenic because they they produce um, and, and they produce endotoxins. I'm sorry, exotoxins, which um, are are dangerous and they make us violently ill. So. Um, when someone has a, a backflow in the bathroom, um, I don't think you can be. Uh, you, you don't. You, you have to be careful about what's what's normal in the body, but now is not where it's supposed to be, and has the potential to divide every 20 minutes, which is what E. coli. That's how quickly it can divide. And but the other thing that you have to be careful of is um, anything that the person harbors in their body is now part of your bathroom. And so if they have a virus or they have an you know maybe they have salmonella, now that is part of your bathroom and if not t- treated carefully then it has the potential to infect other people in the household. Would that be more likely if the other people were say in some way 
uh, immune compromised or had a you know weren't as healthy as the individual that caused the problem in the first place maybe um well you have to be careful because most people who are in you know the middle age or in the prime of their life are going to be able to fight off uh quite a few um, assaults by microorganisms. I mean, we get hit with them constantly day after day. But what you have to be careful about is when children are young and the immune system isn't fully developed, and then also when people are older, um, because then the immune system starts to decline from age 30 on. So um, the older you are, the less... Um, efficient your immune system is. So those two extremes are going to be most um, susceptible, but that doesn't necessarily mean that um, a person who has a good working immune system um, can't come down with an illness. So, for example, let's assume that someone is shedding hepatitis. Um, It doesn't really matter if your immune system is in prime working condition, if you come into contact with enough of the virus, you will most likely have an infection. If you ingest it, you'll have hepatitis A. So it's again, it's it's quantity, and um, you know the um, how well your immune system is working. And even within families, I'm sure you've seen situations where individuals, you may have a sibling that constantly gets a sore throat, another sibling constantly gets a respiratory infection, and another one constantly gets a skin infection. And even within, you know, individuals who genetic makeup is at least 50% similar, um, they're each very different with their immune system. So, yeah, you have to be careful with that. Um, I guess I had another quick question. There's a occasionally this pops up, Felicia, and I, I I'm curious what your opinion is on this issue. There are occasionally these mold remediation prod, products, I guess I'll call mm-hmm. them, that utilize competing microorganisms to I don't know digest the mold or whatever mm-hmm. they're you know. Uh, Promoting. What is your opinion on those types of uh, the the potential for those types of remediation techniques? Again, that that's kind of it came out of bioremediation, and that's essentially what it is. And um, the the theory for that is that the organisms, when put into the environment, will compete with the organisms that you are trying to get rid of because. They have the same food source. And um, the argument or the benefit to them is that when the food source is gone, then um, the organisms will die. And there's, there's a couple problems with that in the household. From a bioremediation standpoint of looking at um, a large ecosystem like the Exxon Valdez spill or, or a military site, that's a different story. But from a, from a home environment or from a building environment, um, there's always going to be food source there. You have wood, drywall, skin cells, um, animal dander, 
hair, all of those contribute to a food source. So it's very hard to say that an organism will die when it loses the food source because essentially your house is the food source and your body is the food source. Um, do they work? Um, they might initially. They might initially work. Um, I don't think that we have enough information um, on products, and I don't think we have a, a a standard for testing these products. And again, that's sort of what the EPA was doing was trying to get a standardized test for these products. Um, the other the other caveat of it is if the organism that you add to compete with the organism that is undesirable dies when the food source goes away, why didn't the organism that you didn't want die to begin with? What was the need for making these competing organisms if they, are all, if they all die when they lose the food source? Right. Why introduce the secondary one and Exactly. Potentially a legal risk of uh, it's not what was here before that's making me sick, but now you end up buying my indoor environmental problems after. Exactly. And remember, these organisms always mutate. I mean, we. What do you mean by mutate? I don't understand. They will change um, their genetic makeup. Actually, they don't make a conscious decision, but it's the survival of the fittest. Those that can exist in a different environment will live. And it's, it's a random change in the DNA that gives them an advantage. And you can't control that. You can't control when that happens. We can't control it in our own bodies. And we can't control it in bacteria. So what you have to be very careful of is these organisms either have to have a time um, a lifespan where they'll die after so many divisions programmed into them, or you're going to run the risk of possibly them not, or they could change in your home. And like you know, just like Cliff said, now you have an organism here that wasn't there to begin with and has the potential of making you more ill because you don't know what you have now. With respect to water damage restoration and, and mold remediation, I, there's a lot of competing information about what the role and use of antimicrobials are in these types of cleanup activities. Can you give us your opinion on what the role is and when they would be useful and when they wouldn't be useful? Well, antimicrobials are, are going to be useful um, in a lot of uh, in a lot of different categories, they they're good in the category one, just because they could, would get rid of the low levels from an initial spill. Um, they're good in category two because again, the levels are going to be increasing, and um, and then in, and then the category three, I think you have more remediation to deal with or more cleanup before you use an antimicrobial, but there are categories to explain to listeners, the categories of water okay. that um, is 
based a lot of times on the source, although I know Cliff has a follow-up question to that. But go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it wasn't a follow-up question. I, I think that there are these categories that are used in the RV industry. You know, they, they use potable water. They use the term gray water. They use the term black water. I think, and, and what's happened is I think these terms have come into the water remediation industry as part of a document called the IICRC S500, which is Know, water damage remediation standard, and what they've done is they've taken these definitions and they have uh, modified them. Do you do you want me to explain where they come from, or? Um, um, yeah, I, I I would just if you could do it quickly, that would be fine. Sure. Uh, clean water would come from a broken in water incoming water line, overflow of a tub or a sink with incoming water. Um, a broken toilet tank. So nothing that has really come into direct contact with human waste. But once it spills, then as it you know, reaches the floor, then it has come into contact. Um, gray water is a discharge from a dishwasher, washing machine, aquarium, waterbed, um, toilet bowl with urine only, um, and a sump pump failure. So there's a, there's some organic matter in there, and there's a low level of microorganisms. And then the last one is the black water, and that would include sewage from any type of point and non-point source, um, a toilet backflow originating beyond the toilet trap, and any type of flooding. And this is there's two things I, I, I would like to uh, to address um, from those water sources, and that is with flooding. You know, when people have a, a problem with flooding, um, whoever's doing the remediation really needs to do a good questionnaire for the for the homeowner, because um, when people, you know, when water's in your basement, um, you don't think to look around you. Um, are there ducks? Um, are there are there a lot of raccoons? Are there a lot of bats? Um, some microorganisms come from animal waste, like um, cryptosporidium. They come from birds, which is cryptococcus. And um, depending on what's around the home, that can influence, number one, what people brought in with their shoes, and number two, what came in during a flood. And the other thing is that um, a study was done about two years ago in, in Allegheny County um, where they tested the... Um, clean, supposedly clean washing machines. And 50% of all washing machines had fecal material in them, which means they had living organisms. So, I mean, that's not a comforting thought. No, no. Because you think when your clothes come out, they're clean, but... Imagine going to the laundromat. Well, I'm, I'm not even <laughs> going to go there. <laughs> But I mean, this is your home, and so. But but when things back up, you know, the water that was in the bottom of the washer, the whatever the kids brought in on their shoes, what the dog brought in, this is all now part of your, um, the, you know, the flora in your home, and um, you know, those are things that people never think about. And it's it, you know, the other thing too is um, when you flush the toilet. It doesn't all go down. It goes <laughs> up. You know, I mean, hopefully, I mean, and not up and over, but it actually <laughs> goes up into the air. 
And so all these things can come into play. And um, But the original question of the antimicrobials is, I am a proponent of them. Um, I my 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 problem with them, I think they're they're good in our in this industry. What concerns me is um, there was a product, and I don't know if I can say it. It's a commercial product, and um, and the lady was under the impression it was on the television. The lady was under the impression that if it smelled good, then it was clean. And that's not true. And we're putting these antimicrobials at such a low level into everything, into every product, into a retail product, that what, what we're doing is we're creating these, these microorganisms that are actually resistant to antimicrobials. And we're going to have a really hard time killing these things um, we're already seeing it in, the, in in living bodies, in in animals, and pets, and in humans. So, I, I I'm a proponent of antimicrobials, but I think they should be, I don't want to say regulated, but they should be used by the professionals in this field. I and guess I guess the, what my question is, and and I don't know the answer to this, is that I was under the impression that antibiotic resistance and so on and so forth within humans uh, w was the result of this abuse of antibiotics and people not taking the entire regimen and mm -hmm. feeling better and stopping taking them. Uh, you know, the funny thing is we've been killing uh, rabbits a long time with shotguns and they breed pretty often and a shotgun pellet still kills a rabbit today the same as it, it ever did and I just Again, I just wasn't sure whether the mechanism by which an antimicrobial works on, on a surface and the way that some of these things work in our bodies are a little bit different. But well, the, an, an antibiotic, when, when we say that um, something is resistant to an antibiotic, we don't become resistant. What happens is it's the microorganism, the bacteria specifically, right. that becomes resistant. And the reason for that is um, bacteria only have one chromosome, so they're very basic. But then they have these little pieces of DNA that are called plasmids, and they can be transferred from one bacteria to another while the bacteria is in your body. So when someone, for example, doesn't finish a regimen of antibiotics, there's still those couple bacteria that have managed to evade the uh, antibiotic. And what ends up happening is they then mix with the other bacteria in your body and the two bacteria share these plasmids. And these, plasm and these plasmids are what holds the antibiotic-resistant genes. And what they're doing today is they're getting, these plasmids are getting bigger and bigger and more complex. So they carry antibiotic resistance for 5, 10, 15 different antibiotics, and they can just transfer from one bacteria to another. And so the more that we use antibiotics, the more the bacteria are developing ways to transfer genes that make them resistant 
to these antibiotics. And when you don't kill everything from taking an antibiotic, then it will grow back in your body and it and most likely have accepted one of these plasmids, which now you can't get rid of it because the antibiotic that you took, the bacteria is now resistant to. And again, the problem here is it's transferable. So it can jump from one bacteria in your body to another. And that can also happen in um, water damage because if a person, you know, if the bacteria came from fecal matter um, it and it's mixing up in the water that came out of the toilet, then this can be transferred between different bacteria in your home. The, uh, we are a little over, but the beauty of this show is, as I say in the introduction after our music, the rules have changed, and we can stay as long as we want. So what I'd like to do, I'm hoping Bob Brandis. Bob, are you still on the line? I'm still on the line, yeah. Great. Bob and Gail, I know that you were interested in maybe joining in on the discussion here with Felicia. Is that okay, Felicia, if we bring them in for just a moment here? Oh, sure. Great. Bob, did you have anything you wanted to add or ask Felicia or maybe throw out as a topic to discuss for a moment? Well, one question I did have, uh, you were going over um, potable water, gray water, and black water. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't, at least at this point in time, anybody throwing numbers out there for approximate bacterial contamination levels. Um, have you thought about that concept? Um, clearly for potable water, there there is standards out there. Um, and, you know, when you get into an issue of gray water, that can span a whole spectrum of, from all the way up to, or starting at the, the level of potable water and going up to bacterial concentrations of black water. Right. And I guess we could ask the same question once we get between gray and black. Exactly. What's the, what, what makes gray versus black? And, um... With levels of organisms, I don't think that that's, I don't know if, if if there are any, you know, standard levels that, that we can go by. Um, but um, I think that, you know, there are other things that are um, considered when you talk about uh, clean, well, the clean water versus gray and black, and that's the amount of, organic contaminants also. So it's not necessarily the number of organisms, it's the type of organisms and also the levels of organic material. And that is much easier to quantify. I've got a question. There there is one other issue. Go ahead, Bob. And I think this is really important for remediators. You're dealing with a a blackwater incident hospital. Mm-hmm. or even from a shopping center, particularly ones located on the southern borders, the odds that you're going to find hepatitis A and hepatitis B and a lot of other uh, viruses and bacteria that are infectious, the risk of that is uh, at least 100 times greater, if not 1,000 times greater, than dealing with a blackwater incident in someone's home. And I'm, not, I'm not sure our industry really is cognizant of that. No, I agree with you. You're correct. 
So now, now, Bob is uh, just a little plug here. Bob is going to be talking about what we have found on quantifying uh, Category One, Two, and Three water at the IAQE conference in Nashville on Saturday afternoon. If anyone is interested, I think he's come up with some interesting information that can be helpful for remediators, because what we have found is that the qualitative definitions that uh, were described earlier are helpful <clears throat> in giving us a broad idea of what caliber of water it was and how remediation is to follow, and is probably adequate for like a residential incident. But if you start to get into um, apartment complexes of hundreds of units and questionable origin of the water, it may be useful to do some testing and find out what quality of water was intruding and what to do about it. Uh, so I think that's kind of the niche we were looking at trying to explore. Well, I've got all of you on the line. I want to build on, on, on what we've talked about. Uh, there's in this IICRC S500 water damage uh, standard. There's actually a chart in there. It's a visual chart. And what this chart does is it talks about how gray water becomes black over time. And I could never understand how it happened because, you know, we're talking about gray water being pathogenic, having pathogenic organisms in there. If, if pathogenic organisms weren't in there when it was gray, how do they get in there in order to make it black? I think it's a matter of degree. You know, gray water probably does have organisms in it, but over time, it's being a living living thing, being an ecosystem, it's going to change. Yeah, but wouldn't you have more of what was living? Well, yeah, that's the, the I think one has to look at that chart conceptually rather than scientifically. If, yes, if you take a body of water that has microbes in it, you give it food, you give it the right temperature, those number of microorganisms will multiply, and you will get a higher number. Now, if E. coli is not there, it's not going to get there. We define the definition of black water as E. coli and, and fecal streptococci and all that. And if they weren't there in the first place, then exactly how does it go from gray water to black water? Uh, well, that's, that, that's my point, and I, I don't think the chart should be in the document because I think that it's theoretical, uh, the same as there's a respiratory study that's in the document as well that's also based on theory. And I don't believe that these types of documents belong in an industry standard. Yeah, it, it is a, it's a tough area. And I'll give you an example. I mean, we, we've had cases of buildings flood uh, in the middle of winter in, in Canada and the United States. And, you know, I, when it's 32 degrees Fahrenheit or 28, that's not growing a hell of a lot. And you can, you can have that water there for a long time before it's going to change from its initial water quality. Uh, and those, those decisions on whether something has gone from Category 2 to Category 3 directly influence the, the type of remediation that you perform and probably the cost of the remediation. Okay. Big, big cost impacts, yes. I think there's only there's one value to the chart now that it's there so that remediators know how to use it. You know, one of the things that you can do is look at that chart and look at this elapsed time and then you can take theoretically a pretty significant mold problem and say it's not a mold problem, it's a black water problem based on the chart because mm -hmm. the water was in there X amount of time. So I guess there's a benefit to having it in there. I, I think too that um 
with this with the black water and the gray water, there's one thing that we we haven't touched on, and you know it, you, you could actually compose a whole another show, but and that is um, let's do that. <laughs> and that is the presence of um, dormant forms of these bacteria. So, for example, if there is a water damage in Canada, um, it is cold, but a lot, not a lot, but some of these organisms, and they tend to be the ones that really can be pathogenic, go into a, a dormant or an inactive form, and it, which is either spores or cysts. And so um, they have, you know, low levels might not necessarily mean when you test something that it doesn't have the potential to quickly become black water if the temperature goes up or water levels go up. So again, you know that that's that's another problem, you know, with um, with the chart in that there there's no no one's looking at spore levels. Well, we are way over now, so what I would like to do, Felicia, unless, Bob, do you have one other that you'd like to throw out real quick? Uh, no, no. Okay, great. But, um, Felicia, before you go, anything you'd like to add for our consumer audience? Um, <clears throat> the one thing that I, that I usually end with um, whenever I give a talk is that it's, um, and this, this was brought up um, in the earlier segment, and that is, um, you know, a lot of people go out and search for someone who does testing, and and you can find places that do that. Um, and and certainly, you know, uh, and then they're and the, and the results are good. But what do they do with the results once they get it? And I think that you know it might cost a little bit more, but when you need testing done, you need to go to a reputable. Um, either a, a, a testing facility or a consulting firm that's going to provide you with um, some more than just numbers on a page and that can give uh, especially a homeowner or a building owner um, some um, guidance and um, you know some additional information. So I, I think that's very important because, you know, I've had clients call me and say, I have these results and I don't know what they mean and no one will tell me anything. I so, got that call yesterday. <laughs> and that's that's important for for um, consumers. And I think when either it was Bob or Gail had mentioned earlier that they spent an hour on the phone with a potential client, I believe it was, it's important for a consumer to maybe spend a little bit of time and understand or try to determine whether or not this person can relate in layman's terms back to them, what do these numbers mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's one of the ways you find out is by asking them some questions on the phone and uh, having your, uh, you know, done your research prior to doing uh, any interviews of potential people doing work in your home. And I don't think they should be afraid to ask questions. I mean, and again, that was brought up previously, I mean, don't be afraid. And if you don't understand what the person's saying, maybe that place is not for you. And you also shouldn't expect to pay for answers either. <laughs> well, that's true too. And that's there's a fine line there between the two. But um, you know, and I and I think it's you know the the consumer has to kind of make that decision. All right. Anything before we go? Did we miss anything? Is there anything you would like to add? 
Uh, no, I'm I'm pretty good. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Felicia. Hopefully, we will get back together in the in the near future, and maybe we'll have a, a little round table with uh, you and Bob and some other bacteria and uh, virus and fungi experts. And I'm gonna wear my rubber gloves for that. <laughs> yes, um, I, I probably I should I. Um, should I let you know if, if anyone would want to contact oh, me? Oh, yes, yes, please. How, yeah, we should have asked you that. How, how do people get in contact with you? Um, you can do that by email, and that would be Felicia, F-E-L-I-C-I-A, at F-L-C-S-C-I dot com. S-L-C-S-C-I dot com. Yeah, Felicia. Felicia. I will get that into my notes here as well. Well, thank you for joining us, Felicia. Thank you. um, Thanks to all of our listeners for joining us once again here on IAQ Radio. If you have any questions or would like additional information about renewal credits for the council, you can email us at info at iaqtraining.com or you can email Email me directly at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. And we are signing off on show number seven, I believe that is, or show number six. We're starting to lose track. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Cliff. Thanks to our listeners. Have a great day. It's a wrap.